Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hello, everyone. Support for this episode of Luke's English Podcast comes from italki, that online company that makes it easy for you to find one-to-one teachers or native English speakers for regular conversations and lessons in English. Listening to this podcast will definitely help your English. But to get proper fluency and accuracy in speaking, it's very important to engage in conversation. And it helps a lot if you're talking to a teacher who can give you guidance, correct your errors and things like that. Listening to Luke's English podcast and speaking on italki, it's a good recipe for developing your English faster and further. And because italki sponsor this podcast, they are willing to give all of you, my listeners, a free lesson. For all the information, go to teacherluke.co.uk slash talk or click an italki logo on my website. You're listening to Luke's English Podcast. For more information, visit teacherluke.co.uk. Hello, folks. How are you doing? Here's a new episode. Obviously, you're listening to it. You haven't heard this before. You've probably heard this kind of introduction before because... this just happens to be the way that I always introduce my episodes. Like, hello, you're listening. Obviously, it's a new episode and so on and so forth. Anyway, here we go. Here's a new one. So this is part two of my holiday diary. And in this one, I'm going to continue describing things I saw and did on my recent holiday in the United States. Uh, the plan is not just to describe our trip, but also to use it as a springboard to talk about some other subjects in a bit of depth. Like I did two years ago when I went on my honeymoon to California and then after that I did a few episodes where I kind of went into all sorts of different subjects. I didn't just talk about what we did. I mean, I did do that. I did talk about what we did, but also tried to kind of move into different areas and talk about some other subjects in depth. And in this episode, that will include things like modern art. So I'm going to be describing some different types of art from the modern period and just kind of giving my thoughts on modern art. Is it is it amazing or is it just a load of rubbish? You know, that seems to be the general... Some people th- seem to think modern art is incredible and it's worth talking about and worth studying and stuff like that. And then other people just think it's a load of old nonsense. So I'll be talking about that a bit and talking about some artwork that we saw in a couple of galleries there. Also, I'd like to talk about astronomy and astrology. Astronomy and astrology. And that relates to something that we did uh, when we were uh, on the holiday. Um, That will probably lead me to talk about flat earth conspiracy theories. And probably some other things too, depending on how much time this takes. I don't want to say too much at the beginning because I don't know how long it's all going to take. But this episode should cover um, some of those things. And um, yeah, it looks like this is going to be a series of episodes with what I hope will be 
an interesting variety of topics beyond just me talking about my holiday. I'm recording this on the same day that I uploaded part one of of this uh, little series. Um, So I'm recording this on the same day that I did that. And uh, it's basically podcast day today. I'm trying to do as much recording and stuff as I can today. So um, I'm already seeing some messages coming in from people on Twitter and Facebook. I uploaded the episode about probably two hours ago, and I've already had some messages and stuff in response to some of the things I said in that episode, particularly in response to the bit of news that I um, told you about. Uh, If you haven't listened to part one, well, I'd suggest you go back and listen to part one. But anyway, um, I I basically announced that uh, my wife's pregnant and uh, we're going to have a baby. That's normally what happens when your wife is pregnant uh, she doesn't just stay pregnant forever and it doesn't just go away uh, normally um, when your wife is pregnant then later on she has a baby at some point I mean ours is going to arrive in December uh, that's when the baby is due so I'm already seeing some messages from from listeners so thank you very much if you've already written to me uh, thank you so much for your kind messages saying congratulations for the fact that we are going to have a baby I can read some of them out Um, I guess the first one I got was from Twitter, um, and that was Carmen on Twitter, who wrote to me, what did she write? Something nice. She said, congratulations to uh, at English podcast, that's me on Twitter, congratulations to Luke and the missus, exciting times ahead. And I wrote back to her saying, thank you, that's very sweet of you to say that. And she replied saying, thank you for sharing the news with us. So, uh, thanks, Carmen, for sort of being nice. And then uh, on Facebook, um, I got a few comments and things too. So Gabor said, Hi, Luke, it's great to hear you again. Let's start the new episode. All right, so I guess then Gabor started listening. And then um, a few minutes later, an hour later, Gabor, I guess after he'd finished, he wrote again on Facebook, Congratulations, that's a fantastic news. Thank you, Gabor. One little correction there. Just to correct, I hope you don't mind me correcting your English. Of course you don't. Uh, congratulations, that's good. You've got the S on congratulations. I point that out because uh, I've seen many times people writing congratulation, and it's not congratulation, it's congratulations. I guess in some other languages, your version of congratulations is not plural. I know, for example, in French, it's félicitations, which isn't plural. Um, but in in English, congratulations has always got an S on it. But you got that one right, fine. But you did then say, that's a fantastic news. And the point is here, it's not a news. Uh, News, although it's got an S on the end, technically is uncountable. It's a bit weird. It's got an S on it, but it's not plural. Let's say it's an uncountable noun. So we don't say a news. You could say that's just... Simply, that's fantastic news. We sometimes talk about some news, like, for example, I've got some news for you, which could just be one thing that you're going to say. I've got some news for you. Or you could say, um, I've got a piece of news for you, or a news story. For example, if you read something in a newspaper, or you read something online, you know, you could say, oh, I read a news story about, you know, whatever. I read a news story about the environment or I read a news story about it, English or something. So um, congratulations. That's fantastic news. Uh, thank you, Gabor. Very nice of you to write that. Uh, Marvin said, welcome back, boss. So I'm, I'm boss. I like that. I like being called boss. That's a kind of word that um, you hear in, in England, I guess in America too, maybe. But certainly in the UK, 
It's one of those sort of uh, friendly words that people use. All right, boss. Thanks, boss. You know, welcome back, boss. No worries. Um, Anna uh, wrote uh, this. The moment I read the words, some big news, I knew what news it would be. And I hit the white. Yes, I did. And then she's written in brackets. Can I use this idiom here, Luke, to hit the white? Well, actually, Anna, you, I wouldn't use it. Um, I've, in fact, I've never heard anyone say hit the white before. I would say hit the bullseye. So this is when you kind of guess something, you predict something or guess it, and then you turn out to be right. You, you, you were correct about your prediction or guess. And you could say, I hit the bullseye. Um, I wouldn't say hit the white. Never heard that one before. I did check it online. I saw one post uh, in the idiot, the free idioms dictionary, um, which included the expression um, hit the white. But that's the first time I've ever seen it. And I mean, if for example, if I check the Collins uh, dictionary uh, here, just as a way of um, just verifying whether it's kind of like a well used expression. No. It's not in the in the Collins online dictionary. Um, so I would say hit the bullseye. Let me just look up that one. Hit the uh, bullseye. The bullseye is the centre of a, a target. Um, hmm. Hit the... This is fascinating podcasting here. Listening to Luke, looking up things um, in the dictionary... Uh, there's 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 more stuff for hit the bullseye than there is for hit the white. Hit the bullseye to hit the very center of a circular target or to achieve the goal perfectly. Hmm, I guess it's not exactly what you're looking for, is it, Anna? You're looking for when you make a prediction and you turn out to be right. I, I don't know. I would just say I I uh, got it spot on. Hit the bullseye. Those are the things I would say anyway. But anyway. In any case, thank you very much. And Anna wrote, congratulations, it's great. I'm still in the middle of listening, but I couldn't but respond to the news there and then. You're going to be an amazing dad, I'm sure. Wow, thanks very much. That's very sweet of you um, to say that. Um, David wrote, Luke, we missed you. Don't do it again. It's been days of solitude and, de- and desperation. Okay, I guess David's sort of joking a bit, s- suggesting that... Um, uh, it, it, he's been uh, desperate uh, with our episodes of the podcast, and actually, I've I've had a, a number of like comments and things of that nature. People saying stuff like, "Oh, it's been so long," you know. Just when's the new episode coming out? I don't know how we're going to survive uh, without uh, the podcast, which is you know very flattering and very nice and stuff, and and also a bit of, just a bit a bit of fun. But also, I'm kind of thinking, well, wait a minute, there was loads of content. During the month of August, when I was away, there was like seven different things. Um, there were episodes 471, 472, 473, the one about cricket, the episode about accents and why the UK has so many accents. So that's four episodes of the podcast and three things on the website. You know, the the episode of, of Zdenek's podcast, not a Luke's English podcast episode, but I mean, I, I was in it. I mean, does that count? Um, and then uh, the Star Wars DVD commentary, which, I mean, I know it's not like a episode of the podcast, and it was mainly James and me talking bollocks while watching Star Wars, but, you know, it's not, it abs- it's not nothing. And then uh, the musical mix, the history of British pop as well, which also went, went on the website, and there was plenty of content in that. So, I don't know, 
I just wanted to remind everyone, I wasn't actually gone for August. In, in it, Effectively, you still got seven things. Um, but I guess really what people mean is that they like the idea that I'm there, which is, I suppose, um, that's kind of nice, isn't it, I suppose? Um, oh, I've just got one here from Andy Johnson. Uh, the Andy Johnson from, from the podcast, and he's written this. Congratulations, mate. Buckle up. That means, like, put your seatbelt on. You know, when, like, when you get in the car, you put your seatbelt on. Buckle up. Things are about to get very exciting and tiring. Very tiring, but mainly exciting. Okay, Andy. <laughs> Thanks, mate. Um, I, I'm hoping to talk to Andy again on the podcast. I mean, Andy's... Um, I mean, not just again, but about this specific subject. Andy is a father of two kids, uh, one of them quite recently born. And as you know from listening, I guess, from episode 471, you heard some of the details about what it's like, for example, not getting much sleep and also standing on your children's toys when you don't realise they're on the floor. Uh, And that includes bits of Lego, uh, probably the most painful Maybe the second most painful thing you can experience after childbirth. Um, I'm actually, I'm sure there are plenty of other painful things out there. But um, anyway, it's it's well known to be extremely painful uh, stepping on Lego, and I've got all of that kind of thing to look forward to. And maybe I'll talk to Andy about uh, about it because he's got some interesting things to say, as usual, on on that subject. Okay, then. So I just wanted to kind of uh, share some of the messages I'd got uh, since uploading part one of this holiday diary series um, and that's very nice of you okay let's move on now let me just recap um, what some of the things I said in part one in literally one in literally two sentences okay so uh, you'll know if you listen to part one uh, we went to the USA on holiday in order to have a blowout a kind of just uh, just to treat ourselves to a holiday before the arrival of our baby in December. Um, so we wanted to have a final trip, just the two of us, and we chose to we we, we flew to Los Angeles via Montreal, spending like a day and a half in Montreal, uh, no half a day in Montreal, and then uh, spent some time in Los Angeles, and then we uh, went to uh, national parks uh, to look at the canyons and things like that, and to visit parts of the Navajo Nation, and then back to Los Angeles again, and then back to Paris, so that was the general itinerary. So what I want to talk about now is um, some things we saw in downtown Los Angeles. So on on a couple of days, we went into the downtown area, um, which is not the best part of the city. I mean, it's just, you know, big high-rise buildings and, um, you know, lots of office buildings and stuff like that. It's not what Los Angeles is all about. LA really is all about the places near the the beach and um, the places in the hills where... You know, you've got these beautiful palm trees and 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 stuff like that, and big homes and and all that kind of thing. Uh, but you know, downtown has some things to offer, uh, including a couple of art galleries. And uh, we like to go. We're not huge art fans, but if there's interesting galleries to see, then we quite like to go and visit them. And it's quite fun and interesting to walk around looking at collections of art, especially if it if they're really good collections. So we. Wanted actually to go to an art gallery called The Broad, which is a flashy looking new art gallery uh, in downtown Los Angeles. And uh, we 
actually wanted to see this installation by a Japanese artist called Yayoi Kusama. Yayoi Kusama, who's a kind of celebrated Japanese artist at the moment, mainly because of this installation. We wanted to see that, but there was a huge queue. We didn't expect this, but there was a massive queue outside. Probably all these people attracted by the installation, which is proving to be very popular. The installation apparently is called Infinity Mirrored Room, The Souls of Millions of Light Years Away. Okay, which is... Now, by the way, do you know what an, in, an installation is? An installation is a work of art that is not just a picture on a wall. I mean, any work of art will be installed into the place in which uh, people look at it. Um, for example, the most basic way of installing a piece of art is if the art is printed on a canvas or something, you hang it on the wall, right? But some kind of art is more than just a picture. It could be the contents of an entire room, for example. It could be objects that are arranged in, in a certain way in the room, or it could be uh, structures that are constructed within the room. Any, like, three-dimensional objects arranged within a three-dimensional space that you go into, you sometimes you can interact with these kinds of installations. So that's an installation, okay? It's a type of art. It's when uh, objects are uh, installed into a space and people can actually kind of... It's three-dimensional and people can interact with them or, or, or simply just observe these things, okay? So this uh, installation um, uh, called Infinity Mirrored Room, the souls of millions of light years away, is, and this is a description from the Broad's website, it is a mirror-lined chamber housing a dazzling and seemingly endless LED light display. This experimental artwork has extremely limited capacity, accommodating one visitor at a time for about a minute. So that's a description from the Broad's website. A mirror-lined chamber. That's a chamber, so... Really, it just means a room, to be honest. But uh, a chamber is a nice word for a for a, um, a room, I guess. Um, mirror lined. It means that the walls are lined with mirrors. So basically, it's a mirror room. You, you. I don't know. I didn't see it because we couldn't get in because the queues were too big. But this is what I understand it is. It sounds amazing. Imagine you go into a room and it's just a big mirror. It's all the walls, floor, ceiling, everything's mirrors. Okay, now, if you went into a room like that, what would it look like? You can imagine your reflection would go on for infinity, wouldn't it? You know, when you put two mirrors together, you, you, you point a mirror at another mirror, and then you look in. You can never quite fully see inside it because your face blocks it, but you look into that, and it's a vortex of just the mirror reflecting into itself forever. I mean, it's amazing. It's, it's, they're fascinating, these things. So this this artist has done that, but with a whole room, but also, I apparently cleverly has installed LEDs. These are light emitting diodes. Little tiny lights are installed in the room as well. And so when you stand in the room and they, it's dark except for these little lights, basically you get this sense of all these lights disappearing off into infinity like an infinite number of lights disappearing off into every direction, and you're standing in the middle of it. And I imagine, I mean, I don't know, because I haven't, again, I haven't bloody seen it, but I imagine that if, if it's dark except for the lights, you can't see yourself very clearly in the, in the reflections, but the lights probably perpetuate 
really far into the distance. So it's probably an amazing experience. It probably feels like standing in outer space with the stars disappearing off in all directions around you. And it's so um, uh, sort of uh, popular and attractive that there was a huge queue all the way around the building. And apparently the queue was like two hours long, which is no surprise really when, you know, people can only visit it uh, on an individual basis. You can't have like a group of people crowded in there at one time. It's just a one person at a time thing. Uh, for a minute so unfortunately we couldn't visit that um, although it sounds amazing so we decided to walk down the road to to another gallery and we ended up at the museum of contemporary art uh, los angeles which was just down the road from the broad uh, which turned out to be a really good one uh, it wasn't quite as sort of spectacular in its in 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 the way that the building looked because the Broad is this amazing building. It, it's just got this really incredible design. You can Google it if you want, and you can see it. Um, but the Museum of Contemporary Art, just fairly normal-looking building, really, but it houses lots of great work. We also, later on in the trip, we visited another place called LACMA, uh, Los Angeles County Museum of Art. So in these two uh, art galleries that we visited, we did see work by some really great artists from several important movements in modern art, which is, I guess, going to give me an opportunity to talk a little bit about modern art to you, which I haven't done very much on the podcast. I don't think I've ever really talked in any depth about art, have I? Well, okay, it's time to do that now then. So now I know that some of you out there, you you might not be interested in art at all. It might not be your thing. Uh, Others listening to this yeah you might be interested in it i mean you know art modern art is seriously popular everywhere i mean any big cities that you visit they usually have an art gallery so obviously this this subject has lots of appeal i think it's worth talking about so we saw some work by uh, some celebrated artists that were in the collection from several important movements in modern art by modern art, I mean art from the modern period, probably from the end of the 19th century up until the present day, pretty much. I mean, although you could argue that today we're in the postmodern era, but by modern art, really, I'm talking about stuff that happened at the, the end of the 19th century and all the way through the 20th century, too, uh, and into the 21st. And in vague chronological order, here are some of the artists whose work we saw. Uh, uh, Pablo Picasso, uh, Jackson Pollock. Uh, Rothko, Franz Klein, Roy Lichtenstein, and Andy Warhol, and lots of others too, but I've just picked out those names from my mind, my memory at this point. Picasso, I mean, what needs to be said? I'm sure that you know all about him. Spanish, you know, born in Spain, famous for uh, work which is considered to be part of the part of the Cubism movement and Surrealism. There are different schools of art or different. Um, uh, what's the word for it? Different sort of uh, periods of art. And so cubism and surrealism are the kind of categories that Picasso vaguely fits into, mainly in the first half of the 20th century and the middle of the 20th century. That was when Picasso did most of his work. Jackson Pollock, uh, an American artist famous for abstract expressionism, particularly in the late 1940s. I don't know if you've ever seen any Jackson Pollock but it looks like someone has just dripped paint all over a massive canvas. In fact, to be honest, that's exactly what happened. If you're anyone out there a fan of the Stone Roses, the, mu- the, the band from Manchester, 
the guitarist uh, from the Stone Roses also was an artist, and he he was very influenced by Jackson Pollock. I mean, in fact, really, his work is almost exactly like the work of Jackson Pollock. So if you're familiar with the, the painting that you see on the album covers of some... Um, uh, Stone Roses albums. That's the kind of thing that Jackson Pollock was doing: dropping, dripping paint from a paintbrush onto big canvases. Uh, I'll talk more about it in a moment. Rothko, who was an American of Russian Jewish descent, uh, famous for his abstract expressionism in the fifties and sixties. Franz Klein, also an American, again abstract expressionism, fifties and sixties. Roy Lichtenstein, uh, who uh, did works of. Uh, pop art and also abstract expressionism during the 60s and Andy Warhol um, American uh, pop art uh, most of his well-known stuff came from the 1960s and other people too so let me just talk to you a little bit about those movements in art that I mentioned just then let me try and describe some art movements I've got a timeline here from a website called uh, this one is uh, art history for dummies uh, art history for dummies this is on the four dummies website which is just dummies.com d-u-m-m-i-e-s.com which is a, a great um it's actually a series of books the four dummies books also they've got a website and they've got you know good information on all sorts of different topics presented in clear english in a simple way so that even an, an idiot can understand it or a dummy, it's, that's why it's for dummies, because it's kind of like art history for dummies or uh, other subjects for dummies. So they've got a timeline here, and I'm just going through all the timeline, all the way up until, let's see, when are we going to... Okay, let's start with um, cubism, futurism, supremativism, constructivism. That's from sort of the early 20th century until just after the First World War, and it says... Pre- and post-World War One art experiments, new forms to express modern life. New forms to express modern life. Okay, uh, what did I write about um, uh, cubism just a second ago? I, I kind of wrote my own description of it. So, okay, cubism, an art movement in which artists went away from realistic representations of things and instead started using geometric shapes different kinds of perspective, lines and things, as if objects could be viewed from a number of different points of view all at the same time. So you think of Picasso, he would draw a picture of someone's face, and instead of it being like a really realistic representation of a person's face, instead, like, the perspective is wrong. It's not like the nose is presented as if you're looking at it from the side but actually you're looking at the face from the front the eyes are in sort of weird positions it's a real thing that's being painted but the uh, perspective is changed or maybe uh, geometric shapes are being used to represent uh, more natural forms that you would otherwise see in a realistic piece of work so this is cubism the idea that objects could be viewed from a number of different points of view all at the same time, which seems to me to suggest the idea that things exist in a kind of prism of perspective. Ooh, it sounds heavy, doesn't it? Things exist in a kind of prism of perspective, meaning that uh, one thing can be viewed from many different perspectives all, that's, all at the same time. 
and that the way that you or the way that the artist looks at something changes its form. Okay. Now, whenever you end up talking about art, it always ends up getting complicated, abstract, and uh, pretentious. Okay? Complicated, you know what that means. Means Abstract means like referring to things that aren't really real or referring to ideas rather than tangible things in the physical world. Just talking about concepts that are just out there in 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 your in your mind or in space or something rather than just like feet on the ground talking about real things that everyone can see and touch you know abstract means all the other stuff the world of ideas um so whenever you're talking about art it becomes complex it becomes abstract and it becomes a bit pretentious i'm going to come on to pretentious in a moment but why not let's define it now pretend if uh, if someone is being pretentious so it's an adjective um, how do you spell pretentious? P-R-E-T-E-N-T-I-O-U-S. Pretentious. Uh, this, if something is pretentious, when it's trying to seem important, trying to look or sound clever or sophisticated, but it isn't really. So it's a kind of empty... Uh, it, 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 Mm, if something's being pretentious it means they're trying to sound like they're really clever and really sophisticated but they're not really so whenever you talk about art there's always a danger that you end up being pretentious talking about something as if it's got this huge level of meaning and it's so complicated and clever and intelligent but really it's just a picture of a, pot- of a potato or something you know um so there's always that danger that it's going to be abstract and complicated and pretentious so I think me talking about this stuff now, yes, I know, it's a bit abstract, complicated, and pretentious. Uh, But anyway, so that was cubism, right? This thing where, like, geometric shapes and different perspectives and stuff. Um, I mean, I'm sure it's more complicated than that. For example, I know friends of mine at university studied cubism for years and wrote essays about it and all that kind of thing. I'm just trying to sum it up in a few sentences, if I can. Um, I've mentioned abstract uh, surrealism, surrealism, which is an art movement um, in which objects or ideas are presented in a strange way, as if in some kind of dream or perhaps representations of the subconscious mind. And you might think of someone like Salvador Dali and his pictures of of clocks melting. You know, a clock in in some sort of weird dream world. There's just a clock on the edge of a table and the clock is melting off the edge of the table. Ooh. And, uh, yeah, it's like the way that time is melting or something. It's, um, uh, according to uh, Modern Art for Dummies or um, this art history timeline, we've got surrealism and Dada as well, which apparently was from like the end of the First World War until around about 1950. And this is described as ridiculous art or painting dreams and exploring the unconscious. And it's artists like uh, Duchamp, uh, Dali, Ernst, Magritte, people like that. Um, And it's described as here some notes saying disillusionment after world war one and disillusionment after the great depression um and it includes a reaction to world war two and the horrors of uh atomic bombs dropped on japan oh okay that's what that's all about is it um anyway imagine salvador dali and melting clocks that's surrealism another one another uh, movement of art we have then um 
After that, it was abstract expressionism came next uh, from the 1940s and 1950s and then pop art in the 1960s and then more recently we get things called postmodernism and deconstructivism. I'm not going to go into postmodernism and deconstructivism. There just isn't time. I mean, uh, we've hardly even got our heads around modernism, have we, uh, before we start deconstructing that. Anyway, abstract expressionism, 1940s and 50s, and then pop art in the 1960s. My definition of abstract expressionism... Um, well, we've talked about abstract, what that means. This concept refers to things that aren't real or aren't tangible, but which exist in the world of the mind or outside reality as we usually see it. For example, not just trying to illustrate a bowl of fruit, not just trying to t- uh, draw a picture of a person, but t- drawing pictures of things that we don't even see, things that uh, exist outside the world of our perception. That's abstract. Then there's expressionism which is when artists represent feelings or emotions in their work. So the idea is that they're trying to do a visual representation of a certain emotional state. Okay, putting that on the canvas instead of trying to uh, draw a picture of a person or an object. So it's it's expressionism, just uh, trying to express their emotions on the canvas. And abstract meaning... Uh, forms or objects which don't really exist in the real world okay so that that's abstract expressionism it's a combination of those two things and it's the name of this post-world war ii art movement that combined the freedom of expression from expressionism and the use of abstract forms from uh you know abstract art okay all right then that's where you end up with things like jackson pollock uh, with all the drops of paint on the canvas um, and things like that. And then uh, pop art as well, which I really like, uh, particularly a lot of Andy Warhol's work. I know that it's really popular and it's sort of mass produced. That's the point, I think, with pop art. But I mean, looking at all the art and stuff that we saw, uh, all these different things, and then a couple of works by Andy Warhol, and they just jumped out to me and I just, I really like them. I think they're, they're fun and playful. Uh, that's the kind of stuff that I like. Um, pop art is the name of another art movement. Uh, this one involving um, uh, uh, techniques, methods, and styles from popular culture, like images from pop uh, from product design. So, like for example, a tin of tomato soup could be presented as a piece of art, or using the kind of graphic style that you find in comic books. Um, including the the way in which comic books are printed, uh, or even using photos of celebrities and things like that, and you know you can you can think about uh, Andy Warhol's pictures of Marilyn Monroe. So he took one picture of Marilyn Monroe and repeated it many many times as a screen print. So a kind of a manufactured pr- uh, um, form of art where it's like mass produced art. Uh, printed on separate canvases and then with different colours on each one. And the, 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 the whole artwork itself is like a selection of a number of different prints of Marilyn Monroe's face with different colours. Um, okay, and it's kind of, it's all about like presenting popular culture as art, but also making statements about uh, the nature of the world that we live in 
uh, where we're surrounded by all these images, these mass-produced things, and that the face of a celebrity is printed everywhere. And it sort of becomes a weird form of art that we uh, are involved in in our daily lives. Um, uh, I told you it would get a bit pretentious, didn't I? Um, So what do you think of contemporary art or modern art? Like I said before, you might think it's just a bunch of colours or shapes or something. You might think, well, anyone could do that. It's just some stuff on a canvas. I could do that. My my three-year-old child could do that. It's just a load of pretentious nonsense, you might think. And, of course, those are very common reactions to um, uh, abstract expressionism and, and, you know, contemporary art. Um, and, you know, sometimes I think like that as well when I see art. Uh, in fact, I think like that quite often, especially if I think it's not very good art, you know? If I, I look... I go to some um, art galleries like in Paris or London and you look around. In London, it's great because they're free. You can just walk in with your coffee and just spend half an hour looking at some stuff. And sometimes it's not very good. You know, you just think it doesn't really do anything for me. Uh, But if it's good, then then I start to appreciate it a bit more. But what makes art good or bad? I mean, I don't know if I have got any authority on this subject at all but for me i think that you just know it when you see it um you know when you look at it generally you know it when you see it especially when it's presented properly in an art gallery in a good art gallery where the space is you know um appropriate to the art and stuff you know it when you see it and and if you look at it and it doesn't really move you or please you or interest you in any way if it's you just like it's just a bunch of stuff on a canvas you know if it doesn't really move you then you i guess you could say that it's bad art because ultimately it's in the eye of the beholder you know it's it's a subjective thing but not completely it's not completely subjective because you also have to invest a bit of time and effort into the art that you're looking at uh, it also helps to try and understand how that piece of art fits into the overall history of art it might help to know about the person who 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 did it i mean sometimes people say that you shouldn't know anything else you shouldn't know have any um outside knowledge you should just judge the art on its own merit but i think it tends to help to know a little bit of information like for example when it was made or how it was made or or you know what kind of art it belongs to i think people need a little bit of um support when they look at art um because not everyone is an art cricket a cricket no i'm done with cricket um an art critic not everyone's an art critic so we don't always know what to look out for but um if you have a bit of uh if you've spent a bit of time finding out about the art that you're looking at that can help you to understand it a bit uh, you basically you have to have some respect for for the work that you're looking at in order to start appreciating it as work and ultimately then it can start to enrich your life in some way but i think that art is often quite pretentious you know for example someone trying to make a very big statement about something that's not all that big really um and um you know i mean for example we saw one thing which was um an installation about domestic life and it was a contemporary one uh you know from an artist i guess who who was alive at the time you know and the artist had i think just uh, earlier that week had 
been involved in putting the installation in. It didn't really do anything for me. I mean, the installation was a huge room, like a really big room, bigger than my apartment, you know, a really big room. And in this room, just there were there was all these lumps of clay. Clay is a kind of, uh, it's like earth. Um, what do we use clay for? Clay, 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 clay. I'm sure that there's a, okay, on a tennis court, you know that um, some some tennis courts have got grass, some tennis courts are hard, and some tennis courts are made of clay. It's a red sort of earth. It's dusty. And if it gets wet, if you put water into clay, the clay absorbs the water a lot until it becomes like almost sort of like um, um, modeling. You can make models out of it and stuff. And then if you can make a model out of clay, you put it in the oven and it turns into, um, you know, something you can keep forever. Am I making any sense? Clay. All right. Anyway, it's like this dark brown form of earth, which is uh, which absorbs a lot of water and it's quite heavy and it's got a lot of density. All right. So anyway, it's a form of earth. So all these objects were arranged like things like pots, plates and things are, are made of clay, which has been fired in an oven. All right. Fine. Um, so there are all these objects. They weren't even objects. They were just blobs of clay laid out on this long table and then of different sizes and then other like bits of clay, blobs and lumps of clay laid out in rows all along the floor. Some of the bits were long. Some of them were sort of like round. Um, they, some of them looked vaguely like vegetables, like sitting in rows. Some of them looked like sausages. Some of them were really big. They looked like big loaves of bread, for example. And just all this clay, these these lumps of clay in this massive room. And my wife and I were walking around and it's like, well, what do you make of this then? And we were just like, it's just a bunch of clay, isn't it? You know, that it's, I quite like clay. It's quite nice material. It's got quite a nice sort of, it looks quite nice. And these objects are weird. Like, are they, what is it? Are they meant to be? Is it meant to be sausages or is that just a coincidence? It just confused us really more than moved us. It was just more confusing. And when art is just confusing, it's a bit annoying. I know that you're supposed to bring more to the table. You're supposed to start to collaborate with the artist. You're supposed to look at the object and go, what's the artist really saying? You know, by using clay, clay is like a very elemental sort of material to be using. And clay really represents sort of uh, the origin of, of people as a species and where we come from and laying out these different shapes of clay as if in a market stall. Really, the artist is making a comment about the the, the, the consumer culture that we all uh, are now embedded within. And the simplicity of the vegetable combined with the complexity of the uh, context in which the viewer enters the room and you know then you're in pretentious territory there you see so um i think sometimes it's it's pretentious sometimes it's um it's it's good it's meaningful i have here in my notes again um that definition of pretentious okay like when something when someone talks about something or presents something as if it's very important clever and sophisticated but really, it doesn't really mean anything. I mean, the best way to explain pretentious is to try and pretend to be pretentious to you now. For example, imagine I'm... T- I mean, I just did it there talking about the clay. You know, that was very pretentious of me. Talking about a work of art, like it's the grandest, most important, most emotionally resonating work of genius in human history. And in fact, it's just a blank piece of paper. Or it's a 
someone has drawn a willy and balls on a piece of paper. Do you know what I mean? Or, uh, uh, you know the kind of thing? I mean, I imagine this is uh, something that happens all over the world, but certainly in, in the UK, a very common and admittedly very rude and very immature piece of graffiti that, you know, probably young men would... Uh, young men that young men would uh, draw on something. Like, for example, I don't know, a bridge that you drive under in a part of London. Yeah, a bridge that you drive under, and someone has used a, a spray can and drawn a balls and a willy on the bridge. It's like a pair of uh, testicles and a, and a penis, like really basic picture of that, with maybe some dots of urine coming out of the end. You know the thing. I'm sure it's done all over the world, but you know, you know what I mean. Uh, a willy. Someone's drawn a willy. So imagine talking in a very pretentious way about someone who's about a, a willy that's been drawn on a bridge, and you'd be like, "Well, you know, I think it's, I think this is more than just a willy on a bridge, Luke. You know, this really is a statement about uh, the, uh, the 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 position of the the masculine identity." in the modern in the postmodern world i really think that uh, you know the choice of the location of the bridge is particularly significant here obviously uh, the bridge representing the uh, a, a, a com- two combined uh, avenues uh, one uh, superseding the other one and the so i really think that the the uh, the choice of spray painting the, the balls and willy there on the bridge really is a comment on about the changing nature of masculinity in 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 the modern world and and you know and they'll be like oh, all right that's interesting what about the what about the, the the dots of urine coming out at the end well obviously Luke, the dots of urine represent the dying um remnants of um you know masculine identity uh coming forth from the from the end of the willy there and you know ultimately luke when the when the the, the urine has uh, finished uh emanate I, I assume it is urine um it may we don't know but uh, uh I, I imagine after that then you know what really will be the function of the willy after the urinating has been completed luke you know it's very symbolic it's very symbolic of the of the the, the masculine identity in the modern world right okay either that or it's just a willy on a bridge um Okay, so that was that's pretentious. I think you know what that means. Like you're being so pretentious. What do you think of that art? Oh, I think it's all a bit pretentious, really. Um, so you might think that modern art is rubbish or pretentious or something, or maybe you're a fan and you think, oh, I love the way the artist plays with different forms and colours. I like the <laughs> not the example of the willy on the bridge. Let's forget about that one. Let, let's. I don't want to just dwell on that in any sense. Um, I think it would be unfair to some of the genuinely good work that you can see in, in galleries in, in many places in the world. Um, so you might think, I like the way the artist plays with different forms and colours. It's incredibly liberating and fascinating to to look at it and to experience it. You know, you might say that you find it inspiring and moving and, and, and fascinating. Um, I think it's quite difficult to talk about art without sounding pretentious because ultimately it's not... Uh, a, a, it's not uh, a medium for words, it's a medium for shapes and colours and textures and things. I personally have got mixed feelings about art. The only, only the really good stuff tends to move me. I mean, it's, it's rare that it really works on me, but I do enjoy the experience of going around a good gallery looking at work which has stood the test of time. If something stands the test of time, it means that it 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 maintains it continues through time like some you know some work doesn't stand the test of time like for example some music that comes out one year 
everyone might go crazy for that music that one year and then uh, like 10 15 20 years later we might look back at that time and realize actually that music was shit wasn't it uh whereas some music really stands the test of time you know it's good then and it continues to be good forever like you know something like the music of miles davis uh, the jazz trumpet player. That music really stands the test of time. It was great then. It's still really great now. Uh, and you can't really deny it. it. It's obviously great. It stands the test of time. So I like the stuff that, that stands the test of time. And I, it, we're lucky in that art is available to us and we can see some of these good quality stuff that has stood the test of time. I don't know where you live. You might have some great art available to you where you live. Uh, I hope so, in which case, you know, maybe you go down and see it sometimes. And, and uh, if you do, you know, let, let me know in the comments section. But um, I like talking about art, even though it ends up being a bit pretentious. I like the way that modern art or abstract art is so open. You feel like you're interacting with it when you look at it. But I personally, I, for some reason, I always need to talk about it. I have to talk about the stuff I'm seeing. But yeah, I like art. It's not something I'm always thinking about. I'm more moved by music, like most kinds of music will get me sort of in my gut. Uh, Acting, uh, films, TV, books, photography, you know, photography with real stuff in it, like people's faces or moments in time that have been captured. That's usually the sort of thing I like. But when it's right, I think modern art can be great. Also, it works as decoration in your home. You know, you can put it in your home and it sort of adds to the general atmosphere in your in your home uh but it's also something you can look closely at and you can let your mind wander and when i say let your mind wander i mean wander with an a w a n d e r which is wander like the way that you would go for a walk without really having any destination it makes your mind wander which is an expression uh we also use the word wander like i wonder what i wonder what we're going to have for dinner for example and that's w o n d e r and that means to just think about things in the future that you don't know about you know just speculate about the future for example uh but let your mind wander is the is the right expression uh, let your mind wander with an a uh, so it's nice to look at art and just sort of let your mind wander um oh i'm going on and on and on about art but you know what are you going to do? I wrote some stuff down, you see. I've just had all these ideas, you see. Because during the, the holiday, at certain periods, especially in the middle, we couldn't sleep. Um, both of us had uh, sort of insomnia during this holiday. Um, maybe it's because we moved around quite a lot. And sometimes, uh, you know, it takes you a night or two to get used to a new bed. And there was a period where we were sort of just lying awake at night uh, which was quite frustrating. But at the same time, I think we just had lots of things going on in our heads. I'll be talking about this later on, about the sort of lack of sleep and the reasons for it. But while I was lying there, some of those nights, um, just lots of things going through my head. I mean, maybe it's because when you go away from your normal life, and you, when, you, when you kind of step out of your normal routine, um, then, uh, and, and you give yourself some space where you're not at work you're not worrying about all that stuff your your mind does tend to kind of carry on uh in an intensive way and i, I may be because you know um i don't know maybe because of 
because we know that we're that our lives are going to change in some way when the baby arrives and that has been a stimulant for us i don't know but um uh, anyway i found lying in bed um in sort of hotel rooms and things that my mind was racing in lots of different directions including you know a lot of the things that i'm trying to communicate to you now and so having come back from the holiday as i said before i wrote some of this stuff down in the days after and i was desperately trying to kind of capture the i don't know just some of the inspiration that i had when i was um, uh, unable to sleep so you know if i'm going on and on about art then that's why because a lot of this stuff was just bouncing around in my head and in order to communicate it to you clearly it requires some sort of uh explaining i I couldn't just stream of consciousness talk about all the stuff in my head without uh somehow making it sort of easy for you to 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 understand i hope so that's why i'm as well as banging on about my feelings about art i'm also trying to explain the the terminology to you and that means that it takes a bit of time uh, to get through it all um so expressionism or abstract expressionism what's it all about so this is me now just having a stab at describing abstract art if you have a stab at something stab means you know with a knife if you stab someone or stab something with a knife it means you stick a knife in something um I know I'm, I'm not going to stick a knife in anyone, but we do have the expression to have a stab at doing something, and it means to try and do something, okay, to make an effort to do something or have a, have a go at doing something, uh, for example, to, just to try to do something. So I'm going to have a stab at describing abstract art, okay? Be prepared. It's going to be a bit pretentious. But anyway, uh, it seems to me, right, it seems to me, right, that uh, abstract art, abstract expressionism, it's all about creating abstract spaces, isn't it? It's all about creating abstract spaces with no rules at all, which is quite liberating. Basically, <laughs> I know I sound like a taxi driver or something. Yeah, you know what I mean? Uh, basically, abstract expressionism, basically a system with no external reference points, isn't it? Unlike films, for example, which are uh, made up of uh, all manner of different uh, reference points from the real world, because you say, you know, you think, oh, look, that's Los Angeles, or that's a that's a Ford Mustang, or that's a you know that's a gun, and he's a bad guy because of the expression on his face. You know, films make reference to the real world, but with abstract expressionism no external reference points in the real world it's just a series of shapes or forms arranged in space which are designed to create certain emotions or feelings in you at a kind of elemental level or gut level right uh, or sensory level sometimes thinking about it is not really what you're supposed to do and talking about it also isn't really what you're supposed to do you just have to experience it it can be something as simple as how it feels to experience these colors and shapes arranged in a certain way it could be the way that the colors blend together or the way that uh the uh the way that certain forms certain shapes stand out or it could be the basic gut reaction you have while looking at the canvas the gut reaction could be oh wow that's profound profoundly moving on a on a sort of uh spiritual level or it could be that's a nice blue isn't it yeah that sort of makes you feel a bit peaceful doesn't it or it could be that, that makes me want to vomit. That's hot. That's that's disgusting. Or it could be, oh my god, look, it's so brutal. You know, it could be all of those things. It's supposed to be moving 
at a very natural level just the interactions of forms in a physical space hmm now when you realize that it can actually be quite liberating and you feel like you're entering into a conversation with the artist which is free from the constraints of language yeah that's the idea but to be honest i do find myself getting sometimes getting absolutely nothing from it as i said it's rare that i i find uh, the you know the really good stuff um now uh i want to talk about art versus the art of nature okay so this is where i'm going to get really pretentious and talk about rocks like their works of art but uh what are you going to do are you going to you know sue me save it for the judge huh if you don't like it um so art versus the art of nature again this is stuff that that i was thinking about when i couldn't sleep and now you're listening to it yes okay this is luke's english podcast um right so some of these works of art that we saw were or are created in a way that seems to allow the hand of nature to guide the artist somehow that might be bollocks but anyway let's carry on so for example jackson pollock who i mentioned earlier he would often drip paint onto the canvas now normally you know when you paint you, you use a paintbrush and you apply the paint to the canvas with the paintbrush and you're very careful about the way in which the paint goes on and it's very you're very much in control of the way that the paint is applied to the canvas all right but jackson pollock would often drip paint or maybe throw paint at the canvas he wouldn't always touch the canvas with his brush but he would somehow involve some elements of chance or some elements of nature in the way that the paint splashed onto the canvas as it fell combining his own judgment like the way that he the general way that he chose to apply it like the color of the paint or the general area that he wanted the paint to go in combining his own judgment with an element of chaos like the sort of unpredictable um element of chance of like how exactly is the paint gonna splash you know the sort of uh the the, the forces of nature you know like the force of physics the way that um uh oil paint would splash and land the behavior of the material that he he used independent to the to the to his own hand um in terms of like how the paint ended up falling on the canvas okay stick with me ladies and gents stick with me the result of this is like looking inside the emotional space of the artist and you can sort of feel his experience somehow in a way that you can't really put into words even though I'm trying to do it now. Uh you experience you can feel his experience somehow. Uh the moments of rage uh, or passion, the s- serenity or terror or just the sense that he was experiencing maybe a lack of control in his life or he was subject to emotions or experiences that he didn't really have a grip on and yet experienced in the form of emotion now that sounds pretentious there's that word again if anything ladies and gents you're going to learn that word in this one unless you already knew it um i know that sounds pretentious but when you look at jackson pollock's work you you can choose to say this is this is just bollocks jackson pollock jackson bollocks more like you might say or you can decide that the guy clearly was very serious about what he was doing so that there must be something in it um and what was he looking for what was he trying to do and when was he satisfied with his work i think it's something to do with the balance of colors that end up on the 
uh, canvas, the texture created by the many drops of paint and the overall sensory effect that it creates. For me, looking at some of that work, it's like entering a mood. Um, it's like sort of uh, you get this sense of his mood. It's not specific. It's just this weird emotional feeling you get from all of those things combined. And with someone like Jackson Pollock, often that mood isn't entirely happy. I don't know if he was a very happy person. I don't know that much about him, but uh, the little bits of information I do know about him, for example, that he ended up sort of being an alcoholic and um, I think he was depressed and he would... uh, sort of go to bars at night and end up fighting and he had a troubled life and so staring into a jackson pollock painting is a bit like staring into his soul or something like that yeah i have the same feeling with an artist like rothko i don't know if you're aware of rothko but his work is often just like very big canvases and it looks like just maybe two bold colors but when you look at it more closely, you see that there is a um, uh, the colours blend into each other a little bit, and uh, you get absorbed into the painting, and it and it's uh, like an experience looking at, at the picture for a long time. He managed to paint these pieces, as I said, that look like large blocks of colour. But as you stand in front of them and uh, and absorb and absorb them um the colors seem to blend slightly and they have this weird effect of becoming luminous like some of the glow the colors might start to glow they they seem a bit luminous or some of the colors appear to become darker and you get this sense of depth or space and it fills you with a certain emotion as well often Uh, I think with Rothko, that emotion is something like sadness or wistfulness or even a slight sense of stimulation as well. It's it's weird that the the things that if you let yourself see it and experience it, it's weird the things that that will come to you. Like you start to get a feeling of like this one feels kind of um, quite confident or this one feels like really full of dread or fear or something. You know, Um, it's a bit like tasting food or tasting wine. You know, if you taste wine, you, you take a sip and you could be like, it's just it's just flipping wine, mate. Just drink it. Or you can taste it and let the flavours roll around in your in your mouth and and you know, you can use your creativity and, and really open up your, your, your senses and start to realise, yeah, actually I'm getting uh fruit or I'm getting kind of like a, a slightly bitter interesting bitter taste or a texture, or I'm getting a b- sort of bananas or or I'm getting a kind of candy flavor or something you know um same kind of experience um and by the way looking at the real thing looking at a real work of art is far better than looking at print or uh, a poster version in a frame on the wall of your house um you know because the real thing is a certain size it's presented in certain conditions there's proper lighting uh, you're seeing the actual strokes of the artist's brush or some sense of how he or she did it and you see the texture of the finished thing which is important too. Going back to Jackson Pollock, he would work on these big canvases which would be on the floor. He'd lay, lie the uh, canvas down on the floor and then drip the, uh, the paint on the top. He would start from scratch, start from nothing, and just let the painting develop as he added more and more layers. But other artists uh, took a different approach, like someone like Franz Klein. We saw some of Franz Klein's work in in both of the galleries that we visited. Franz Klein apparently, I mean, his work is again abstract expressionism. It looks like 
big black lines on massive canvases. Uh, but he would plan his work. He would plan his abstract work on a small piece of paper first. He'd sketch it by hand and plan it quite carefully. And then he'd recreate the little sketch in in his notebook on a big canvas. And the effect is that... Uh, you know, really, it was it was just a few uh, scratched lines on a small piece of paper that, when it's applied to a big canvas, becomes this huge, striking piece of work. Um, the effect is a, a bold mix of broad, straight lines that combine in a kind of haphazard fashion, um, meaning haphazard, meaning sort of a slightly chaotic fashion. So big, bold lines combining as if by accident um, rather than straight lines in geometric style they're just like big lines that just seem to be um, coming together by accident and even though it's planned um, and we kept every time we every time we saw his paintings we kept thinking that they looked a bit like close-up images of plane crashes so I remember that saying to my wife like what do you think of that one over there and she was like looks like a plane crash and it did look kind of like a plane crash, like done in black and white. It looked like the vague sense that it was maybe a World War One biplane. You know, those old World War One planes that had two sets of wings. It looked like one of those biplanes had crashed into the ground and we had taken a, a close-up shot of it and just taken out the lines and made them all black and white and then made it onto a huge canvas the size of a wall. I mean, that's not what they were. They weren't pictures of plane crashes, of course. They were just lines. But the point is that the work had the sort of dynamic urgency, the violence of a plane crash, but it was just a few lines. So our, our experience of it was like, it seems like a plane crash, but really it was just somehow uh, the, the, the kind of um, uh, the feeling of a plane crash. All right. This is the most pretentious episode I've ever done. I didn't mean it to get so pretentious. All right. Whoa. Oh, there's loads of stuff. Andy Warhol. All right. Look, I've started, so I'll finish. I might as well carry on and get through the stuff that I wrote about art. I didn't expect to to be going on about it quite so much. But, you know, it's hard to, it's hard to prepare this stuff. And, you know, my main aim was to try and just get my thoughts down and get them out to you. Um, and hopefully in this episode you've learned a bit about modern art whether you wanted to or not i don't know um all right well i don't never explain never apologize luke yeah that's a good thing to remember i don't apologize and there's no need to explain um i think you'll find that if you think about it you've learned a lot about art and if you already knew this stuff about art hopefully you've just enjoyed listening to me talking about it let me just say the things that i wrote down about andy warhol the guy who did the pop art. He, Andy Warhol is also the person who designed the cover of that famous album by the Velvet Underground and Nico. You know that classic album, the Velvet Underground and Nico? It's a, 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 a music record with a banana on the front. It's iconic. You see it on people's T-shirts. You see it on posters. If you go to record shops, you often see uh, copies of the Velvet Underground and Nico with the big yellow banana that was Andy Warhol. Andy Warhol did loads of, of stuff during the 60s. And um, in these galleries, there were lots and lots of other kinds of art, including pop art, for example, Andy Warhol. And pop art sort of consumed aspects of um, consumer culture. 
by consumer culture i mean the the culture of of the way in which let's say shopping and shopping for stuff becomes the most important thing like that's a fairly recent thing like a hundred years ago that's not what defined people's lives you know it wasn't like the way in which they bought things and the things that they bought uh that wasn't what it was all about if you went to um a city a hundred years ago you would have seen that most of it was just like fairly plain stuff functional things you know it was more about making things rather than consuming things these days certainly in 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 sort of the developed world uh i mean i can just talk about britain uh in britain you know go to a town center it's just shops and shops and shops it's all about shopping birmingham for example uh, this city that i know well uh even when i was growing up there uh, you still got this sense that it was like this sort of industrial city or post-industrial city at least where there was still a sense that many of the spaces were places where things got made or or things had been made recently you go to birmingham now and it's just a big shopping center in the middle of town the place has been redesigned and and reimagined as a as a place to go shopping it's a place to buy things and kind of like the way in which people live their lives now a lot of things like their identities are, are are defined by the way in which they consume the things they buy and uh that's what makes you who you are whereas i don't know 100 years ago 200 years ago it would have been you know the way in which you worked or the um uh or your relationship to the church or something like that or your relationship to the land would have been a defining factor but um these days it's more about you know what kind of what brand of trainers do you wear and um you know what are you an iphone user or an android user it's as a consumer that seems to be the thing that defines your identities and and pop art was all about that really it's about consumer culture and the idea that art art could be a mass-produced thing as well just like the way that products were mass-produced like cars you know like like ford cars were like these these mass-produced uh, things on a production line art could also be the same kind of thing and we still see that t- today you know these poster shops that just sell tons and tons of uh, of posters copies of the same thing movie posters or certain images that get repeated pictures of Che Guevara or pictures of Jimi Hendrix or stuff stuff like that that essentially is is pop art but back in the 1960s that stuff didn't really exist except in the art galleries it's really the 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 artists who who define the who kind of lead the way in culture in in many cases and i think pop art is an example of that that the work done by andy warhol with his screen prints of marilyn monroe's face again and again is really a comment and and an expression of the culture in which he he uh, found himself uh, living in at the time you're listening to pretentiousradio.com um so um what was i saying uh the idea that uh, art could be mass produced and that everyday consumer ob- objects could be works of art too if presented in that way and famously andy warhol presented things like a, a, a can of soup tin soup campbell's uh tomato soup a picture of it as art okay um I think, as I said, I, th- I think we're still experiencing the influence of that kind of thing today with things like T-shirt culture, with cool designs on T-shirts, or the fact that we consume logos as brands, as a form of art. We have logos on T-shirts. 
uh, not just because you know why we why is everyone going around wearing logos on their t-shirts like a big logo adidas or, or whatever it is um it's because it's sort of an, a, somehow an expression of I, of our identity it's a form of art in a, in a sense um i mean you might just say well i just like adidas i just like the, their products i like i i feel like an adidas person so I, I like to have adidas on my t-shirt but really what you're doing is you're you're interacting with a, a an image um and presenting it to the world i mean your chest has become a sort of art canvas of its own you're you're exhibiting a piece of pop art you're also advertising adidas by the way if you do that i mean fine i mean you're still doing that everyone who wears a t-shirt with a with a logo on the front you're basically advertising that logo uh, you're giving that company a bit of free advertising which i guess it's about brand loyalty you know you like this is my brand adidas is my thing i'm not nike i'm an adidas person um ah, it's interesting that these brands they've got different uh, meanings right like in some countries in the world that three stripe adidas tracksuit you know those black or blue tracksuits with three white lines going down the arms they that can mean different things in different countries um like for me that represents like a musical movement breakdance music from uh, probably new york in the late 1970s and early 1980s like these multicultural communities in parts of new york where you got like um kind of uh, all sorts of different people from different backgrounds like sort of black kids and puerto rican kids and just sort of like white kids and stuff um all dancing to uh, music that was made in the 70s being played by a DJ and they're doing this crazy kind of wicked dancing where they're spinning on their backs and those Adidas tracksuits, for some reason, those are the things they were, they were wearing. So that's what it means for me. It's like the cool music and the, and the, the breakdance scene. When I was a kid, I would go to Covent Garden sometimes with my parents they would just take us into the centre of London. And in the 80s, you would see these breakdance gangs uh, breakdancing in Covent Garden, and they would be wearing the three-stripe Adidas there. And, and for me, they were the coolest guys in the world. Now, I know that in some other parts of the world, three-stripe Adidas means something else. I wonder, I wonder what your associations are with uh, three-stripe Adidas. Now, I think that's an example of a form of pop art that you take a design and it's consumed in a certain context and it ends up having a message of its own. Um, and companies now are, are sort of involved in this, aren't they? Companies are actively trying to manage the, the, the meaning of their brands. And so pop art is really about that. The way that art has become consumer culture and consumer culture has become art. It's when starts, art starts to eat itself, you know, it starts to consume itself uh yeah <laughs> any idea what i'm going on about i wonder i don't really understand all of it i'm trying to work my get my head around it all but i think overall it's fun to go to an art gallery to drink you know a load of coffee and then just stare at all this stuff and see what it makes you think about and what it makes you feel anyone can do art you know anyone can do it but i think to do it well is actually really difficult so there is something to it you know anyone can do it but not everyone can do it well. Um, it's not just a bunch of colours on a canvas. It is backed up by the intention of the artist, a technique, the general appreciation of the aesthetics of shape, colour and texture and stuff. So, basically, we saw some modern art. It was pretty cool. But honestly, the art that we saw just 
couldn't be compared to the truly stunning works of nature that we saw later on in our trip in places like the Grand Canyon. And I'm talking about things like objects and environments that have been formed by natural processes over millions of years, rock formations, geology. That was more moving and more impressive than the work that we saw in the art galleries. And it seems to me that from the point of view of the observer, the exact same forces are at work. Do I think that? I wrote that down. Do I really believe that? Well, anyway, let's see what I wrote. When you look at art or when you look at a mountain or a rock formation, you get the instant emotional and intellectual reaction of seeing those incredible shapes, colours and textures. And you experience the wonder of imagining exactly how they were created and the story that they tell. Okay, so in that sense, looking at a work of art and looking at a mountain is amazing because you think, what, you know, how did that happen? Uh, uh, what was the t- how, did it, how did it actually happen? Mm-hmm. I must say I was blown away by the geology that we saw on the trip, which I will describe in more detail later. It was so stunning that at times, like, for example, looking at the Grand Canyon, it was so stunning that I was lost for words. And it kind of resonated with us so much, you know, that it was it was quite hard to come to terms with it. That might be why we couldn't sleep, because it was just like... What uh, my brain was like, uh, the Grand Canyon is just it's too big, can't compute it. Um, you might be thinking, Oh, come on, Luke, it's just big rocks, and it is big rocks, of course. But I think that we all find these things impressive, don't you? I mean, if you go and see an amazing natural spectacle, it's pretty impressive. I'm just trying to capture that feeling in words somehow, and and I'm going to be trying to explain that later on in this little series. So I know this sounds pretentious or something, but literally every day we would arrive at a different location to be greeted by ever more impressive natural spectacles. And after spending time in each place, doing some walking, getting quite hot in the sunshine, uh, we would get quite exhausted at the end of each day and we'd have this kind of stunned feeling. Now, I don't worry, by the way, my wife was pregnant at the time, but we were very cautious about that. So, you know protection from the sun water blah 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 but you know we would come home at the the end of the day feeling quite tired and we'd have this stunned and stimulated feeling during our dinner often and we'd sit there trying to kind of just talk about what we'd just seen and we couldn't often couldn't sleep during the night you know it's like our brains couldn't really rest until we'd somehow managed to kind of uh, compartmentalize the things that we'd seen compartmentalize meaning put everything into the right compartments you know in our minds like for example the grand canyon it's the biggest thing i've ever seen i mean i've seen the moon obviously which is technically bigger than the grand canyon but the moon is far away you might have noticed so it doesn't appear that big but the grand canyon you stand there it's 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 you can't see all of it at the same time you can't really contain it all in your eyes you also can't really contain it all in your in your head it's so bloody big it makes you feel insignificant like a little blink in the eye of history the grand canyon is like over 500 million years old um some of it's like about a billion years old i think uh some of the rock in there so um and uh these formations are so big that you feel completely dwarfed by them so this was far more impressive than the modern art that we saw and it made the modern art just look like sort of primitive cave paintings by humans trying to get a grip on the power of basic shapes and colors whereas nature out there in the world is 
far more impressive. It's the master artist. It's the master craftsman. Basically, what I'm trying to say is that nature is the best artist uh, out there, um, in my opinion. Yeah. And I say nature because the, the whole story of nature is there in these rocks. You know, the whole thing, the Grand Canyon, all the different things that we saw, the whole thing has been created by different natural forces over hundreds and hundreds of millions of years, which is mo- it's longer than we can really imagine. It makes total sense that water, for example, over such a long period, could erode rock into these unbelievable shapes. That ice would break up the rock, forming bizarre shapes. That once that what was once a crack in the ground could become a huge open canyon with a river way, way down at the bottom. So nature is what formed these things, simply through the presence of certain elements on Earth and the actions of the laws of physics. It's pretty mind-blowing stuff. Uh, but the, the modern art was a really good way to get into the mindset of appreciating the aesthetics of things, and um, I really enjoyed looking at that. And I really enjoyed looking at the uh, all of the geological things that we saw too. Uh, this episode, I don't know. You can let me know what you think about it. Uh, I hope that you enjoyed hearing me banging on about modern art and contemporary art and things like that. If you've never really considered art as something to be interested in before, I hope that I may have given you some inspiration to, to think about it and check it out. If you like art already, then, well, fine. All good. Okay, then. Um, I think that's the end of this episode. And in the next one, I'm planning to talk about um, going to Griffith Observatory, which is a place where you can observe the night sky, the stars, the planets, the moon, the sun. Um, And uh, the sun obviously isn't in the night sky, but you know what I mean. If the sun was in the night sky, that would be weird, wouldn't it? But technically it is. I mean, the sun is in space. Uh, You know what I'm talking about. And so I imagine in the next one, I'll be talking about things like astronomy. Uh, I'm going to try and talk about astronomy and astrology what's the difference and uh and things like that so really this holiday was all about astronomy geology and i need another ology here um scientology well yes actually uh there was a bit more scientology all that stuff is the kind of thing you can expect to come um in the uh in in the future in forthcoming episodes of the podcast thanks so much for listening all the way up to this point you are a wonderful human being and um uh the universe is smiling upon you does that make sense who cares it doesn't matter It's all good in the hood, as they say. Thanks for listening. Speak to you again soon. But for now, it's time to say goodbye. Bye, 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 bye. Thanks for listening to Luke's English Podcast. For more information, visit teacherluke.co.uk. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. 
If you enjoyed this episode of Luke's English Podcast, consider signing up for Luke's English Podcast Premium. You'll get regular premium episodes with stories, vocabulary, grammar and pronunciation teaching from me and the usual moments of humour and fun. Plus, with your subscription, you will be directly supporting my work and making this whole podcast project possible. For more information about Luke's English Podcast Premium, go to teacherluke.co.uk slash premium info.